My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. Identity theft. It is something that is running rampant in our world today, in our culture. It is so easy to have your vital information stolen from you, to have your credit card number taken, maybe to have your credit information taken, all of your vital stats about your life, to have your social security number stolen. I thought it was interesting, the guy that did the LifeLock, you know, and he guaranteed uh, his, he put his number everywhere. That was not a good decision. <laughs> his was hijacked multiple times over. He stopped advertising it after that. Uh, there's a whole world of people that would love to steal your identity. It's called fraud. And somebody wants to take your name and uh, profit from it. I mean, I still receive emails from some, you know, widow in London or Nigeria that's offering me seven or eight million dollars. And I still delete the email. And, you know, it's like maybe some of you are gullible. Hopefully you're not. But even if you're very shrewd in the way you handle your information online, it's easy for those that hold our information to not hold on to it, right? I mean, were you in the uh, Equifax loss? I mean, I remember getting an email. It's like 30% of United States citizens. uh, Sorry, (laughs) our bad. We let your information leak out. Can we still be friends? We're like... I never thought we were friends in the first place, so no. Uh, But it is a a rampant thing that someone could take your identity, pretend to be you, and rack up all kinds of bills. Uh, Just a couple stats from 2017, which is the latest information we have. uh, 16.7 million Americans were victims of some kind of identity fraud. A record high number from the previous year. And once all the 2018 numbers come in, I'm sure it's going to be even higher. Criminals are really smart. And there are just crime waves that relate to stealing information. Um, Here's a story that I grabbed uh, from one of those stories about identity theft. This gal, it was a big surprise to this gal, Siobhan King Lewis, a 23-year-old single mom from Atlanta, when she checked her credit report three years ago, she found that someone had opened more than 25 credit card accounts in her name, had taken out loans in her name, and even filed for a marriage license in her name. How about that? Married and don't even know it. Yeah. Uh, King Lewis said that she tracked down the culprit who was a former coworker who she had let stay at her house for a short time and obviously had gone through her possessions, her trash, her purse. Her ex-colleague had run up about $37,000 in charges, which I'll be honest is nothing compared to what people do and can do. Buying a car, even a plush $1,200 mattress. How about that? I wonder if that gal slept well at night on that mattress. Um, She says, it's really scary knowing that someone else has been living my life. 
And, you know, and since then, you know, Yahoo breaches Facebook again and again. Uh, and it just, just seems like the information is out there that could cause you harm. Um, Equifax, Microsoft, I mean, it just happens. People are wanting to grab your credentials, what identifies you as a human being, and twist it for their purposes. People want to steal your identity. And that's not something that we should feel threatened by. We should just be knowledgeable of and work diligently to make sure that we do everything possible that it doesn't happen. But I think about it this way. Culturally, I think people want to do the same. Think of it this way. There is a a culture that you and I live in, and it has an identity that it creates. And then it calls us, it invites us to adopt that identity. We don't often think about it. It's just what it is. And by way of all of the uses of media, print, uh, everything we have around us, the air we breathe, there is an identity that is being communicated. And if we don't ever stop and ask questions about it, we are going to be victims of identity fraud, identity theft. Someone is going to tell us this is what real is. This is what normal is. This is what right is. This is what wrong is. This is what we should be and therefore be that. And if we don't ever question that, we're going to participate in their identity theft, in our identity theft. And I think it's an important thing for us to think about as followers of Jesus Christ because when it all comes down to what the Bible says, God says to us in his holy word, It's that God alone should define us and give us our identity. And that whatever he says about us is what's true and what's right, even if we don't feel that. That if the Bible says that we are in Christ, which is something we're going to see in this series over the next six weeks, then that means something. That whatever Jesus says about us, whatever Jesus did for us, that's true. Whether somebody else preaches a different message or whether we even feel like it or not. I believe that we live in a culture that wants to give us an identity that God says is false. Now, we we finished this series in Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes, we looked at a series called Life After God. And we talked about Solomon and paralleled it with the post-Christian culture, the world that we live in. Because Solomon, in a very real sense, he walked away from his faith in pursuing pleasure, in pursuing all of the money, in pursuing uh, all of the achievement and all the, the power and the wealth and security. And he walked away from God and he lived a life that way and he wrote about it in Ecclesiastes. And so we could learn a lot and we did over those weeks. Well, for the next six weeks, we're going to talk about that as it relates to the areas of our life that we wrestle with today in our modern age, in our postmodern age. And so I want to hearken back to something I talked about at the very beginning of the Ecclesiastes series, the Life After God series, and it's this. Today, we live in a post-Christian culture. We live in a post-Christian world. And it's important for us to understand that. We no longer live in the world of our parents or grandparents. Now, I'm 54 years old, and so I was born 1964. And I know that, by the way, November 26th is my birthday, if you want to write that down. And I thought you might want to know that for some reason. Who knows? And uh, we live in a world, I live in a world that's not like the world I was born into or grew up in, right? And if you're uh, older than I am, you know that, you get that. If you're if younger or much younger, maybe you don't see it as much, all right? Um, but, but I'm not going to say anything against culture. I'm just going to peel back the curtain and reveal culture for what it is. You know, in the Christian era that existed from, we'll say, 
Jesus and the cross and the Apostle Paul and the Western expansion and Christianity really being a key part of that for the last 2,000 years up until the 50s, 60s, maybe 70s. We would say it's the Christian era or the, you know, a Christian culture. There were some basic truths that went along with that narrative. There were some assumed truths. And in the, in the Christian narrative, it went along these lines. There is a God. Everybody just accepted that. And you, maybe you weren't Christian, maybe you were Jewish, maybe you were Islam, Muslim, or whatever, you know, but you, but you believed in something greater than yourself, right? In the Christian era, there was a God. And maybe personal, maybe not personal, okay, but there was definitely a God. In other words, something greater than you or me. Number two, there are moral truths that God has spelled out right and wrong. That's really important that that God communicated us. We believe that as Christians in the Bible, uh, Jewish people in the, in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, um, Muslims in the Quran, and so on and so forth. We all have these scriptural truths that came from a higher being than us that wrote them down as right or wrong. Those are the things we have to abide by. The reality is, though, if there's sin, we don't abide by them. We all acknowledge that. We accepted the fact that we fell short of that. And so we had all kinds of ways to address that. We knew what things were, and we called them by certain names. And, and we were really clear about that, that there was right and wrong, and we held standards of right and wrong. That's what we were all about. And then there was the afterlife, that there's some way to gain favor with this God, this being, and then we will be in the presence of that God or being, whatever that looked like, right? Okay, so that was the basic Christian narrative, that we knew there was a God, he put down rules, we didn't match up to those rules, there was the opportunity to be in a relationship, and then one day be with him forever. That was the basic Christian narrative. In other words, the calling of life was to live beyond yourself and to live where what, what somebody else said, that we seek outside of ourselves for truth, and whatever that truth is, we try to align ourselves with it, okay? And that's why it was really easy to have things like the four spiritual laws or things like steps to peace with God, because all you had to do was connect the dots when everybody basically understood this, and it was easy to have a message of salvation, we would call it, right, and present that. Um, but time has evolved that message, and in the 60s and 70s and 80s, without us really realizing it, that basic Christian narrative was morphed into something that, well, in 2005, somebody called moralistic therapeutic deism. And I, I like that because it was moralistic. It was basically, here's good and bad. It was therapeutic because the Oprah's and Dr. Phil's or your therapist, your shrink, your doctor, your self-help book would teach you how to work your way through this world. And, and deism, there is still some higher being, but he's disconnected and not really concerned or involved with our day-to-day -day life. So we have to make it work, right? And so these were the tenets of this new narrative, our culture. A God still exists, yeah, who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth, but he's a very disconnected God. He doesn't want to be involved in the day-to-day -day world. He's busy spinning planets, right? Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair. That's the basic high value is just be good to each other, right? Sounds like a mom. Just be fair, right? Pour the cup and make sure all three kids get the same level because God's deepest desire is that we're nice, right? Right? 
You know, I, I once told a staff member, you know, you want everybody to be nice, but Jesus wasn't nice. <laughs> Jesus was just honest sometimes, right? And, and the idea of being nice and being fair just doesn't work in our world today. But that's a high value that our world places on us is that let's just do no harm, right? Uh, number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. In other words, you just bottom line have this goal of being fulfilled. Whatever you want to do, you do that, right? And then number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when taking a final exam, graduating from college, when you have marriage issues or you're financially in the hole, right? When you've got a problem, then you can come to church. Then you can cry out to God. When you need him, he'll show up. He's kind of like the butler. Push the button. Ring the bell. He's Santa. Sit on his lap. Tell him what you want. You know, he's the vending machine. Put the prayer dollar in and punch the button and you'll get a Diet Coke or whatever you want, right? That's kind of how we view God in this new narrative. He's going to bail you out when you've blown up your life. And then finally, good people go to heaven when they die. And (laughs) I'm here to tell you, I mean, I'm not Adolf Hitler, but I'm better than him, right? I mean, I know I'm not Mother Teresa or Billy Graham, but I'm going to make it, right? I'm basically good. At the end of my life, when I stand before there and the great scale is weighed down, certainly all the good stuff I've done is going to outweigh the bad, right? Because, I mean, I've, I've, you know, bought Girl Scout cookies and, you know, I've helped them out and I've helped little ladies across the street. And, hey, I've never killed anybody. So I'm a basically good person, right? And good people go to heaven, right? That's the world that we live in. That's the world that is known as a religious world. And some would even say that's a Christian message, but it's not the message of the Bible. But the subtle shift, and this is what's really important, is to realize it's no longer an outside-in method of communicating truth. It's an inside-out method of communicating truth. See, in the old day, sacrifice was when you would deny yourself for the sake of the greater good. I mean, I think about the greatest generation, right? Those that survived the Great Depression, uh, World War II. You know, those boys, 16, 17, 18 years old, (laughs) those that lied on their forms to go to war, to fight the enemy in Europe or in the Pacific Theater. And uh, they died, and they were heroes because they sacrificed everything. They left their families They left their fortunes. They left everything to go when we needed them. And that was the ultimate act of heroism. But that's not what we read today. That's not what we see. Today, the true north, the ultimate act of valor is to refuse to sacrifice. In fact, you refuse to sacrifice your own identity your own understanding of who you are, and you cling to that above all else. And you're a hero if you stand alone with your identity in the face of anybody that might say otherwise. The calling of life today is to be free as you and you alone determine it, which I'll have to call hypocrisy on because you didn't determine it. The culture did. You just bought the message, right? The goal of life is to define yourself and to live accordingly. Now think about this. The implications of this, I think, are huge. Um, You no longer gain your truth from others, uh, your family, your parents, uh, your church, your pastor, your Bible, your religious book or whatever. You no longer gain it from them. And once you've determined who you are and everyone, you know, around you is there, they must affirm that who you are. 
And in past times, as you'd go outside to find your identity, today you go inside and decide who you are, and you cannot let anybody else tell you who you are. And once you decide that, the ultimate supreme sacrifice is to live for that and that alone. Now, in the old Christian narrative, think about this. You were a good person if you sacrificed for your family, your nation, and such. You were willing to give your life up. In the new narrative, you are only free if you refuse to give up what you believe. So think about this as a church, as a group of followers of Jesus here. What does that do to the very definition of sin? Because if you can no longer look at someone and say what they're doing by their behavior is sin then they would look back at you, see the only sin is really you telling me that I've sinned, right? It's kind of fascinating. The only real sin in our culture today is for me to say that someone has sinned. The only real redemption that people could find today is to say, I need to be redeemed from you who tell me I need to be redeemed. That's, that's where we are today in our culture when it comes to the very meaning and understanding of sin. And so we now live in a new cultural narrative. We live in a post-Christian world, and these are the basic tenets of this post-Christian world, this new narrative. And you don't have to think about it. It's everywhere. We are immersed in it. The world has discipled us in this, and we are not even thinking about it, right? It just is what it is. It's the water we swim in. But if we ever stop to ask questions about it, you must be true to yourself. Again, the highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. That's the highest good. You must be free to live any way you want. Traditions, religions, regulations, social ties that restrict individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression must be reshaped, must be dis- deconstructed, or must be destroyed. Uh, n- number, number three here, you have to do what makes you happy. The primary social ethic is tolerance of everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression. Any deviation of this ethic of tolerance is dangerous and must not be tolerated. You might want to think about that logically for just a bit. Number four, no one has the right to tell you what is right and wrong for you. In fact, the new social justice is less about racial equality, less about economic equality, less about male-female equality, and more about sameness. In fact, the new social justice is simply this. If you deny me the right to be me, you are socially unjust, and that must be destroyed. And finally, only you determine your standards of right and wrong. Structures, institutions are suspicious of best and evil at worst, and any form of external authority must be rejected, and personal authenticity is the ultimate supreme glorification. Now, Some of you are going like, okay, where's the sermon, James? All right, we'll get there. Um, The new cultural narrative is simply this, that we have removed God from the throne, and any definition of right or wrong can only be determined by ourselves, and we are now on the throne of our lives. Now, that's where we live today. And here's the cool thing. It's an awesome time to be alive. It really is. There's no fear in that. In fact, there should be incredible joy as followers of Jesus because we live in a world just like the first century where the apostle Paul traveled around when there was just a plethora of gods and cultures and there were all kinds of languages and everything was mixed together and you could do whatever you want and nobody could tell you what was right or wrong and the gospel message flourished in that. It was amazing. So you shouldn't run away going, oh, woe is me, chicken little, the sky is falling. But we should be aware of it and we should know as followers of Christ how to walk wisely in this world and to make the most of every opportunity. 
Now think of this. People used to see truth as something outside of themselves and feelings as something inside of themselves. However, today, that's no longer the truth. Back then, we would sacrifice our pleasures and freedoms to remain close to the truth. Today, feelings are truth. We find our identity and fulfillment in our feelings. And my truth must be accommodated and my truth must be affirmed and my truth must be celebrated. Now, um, I'm going to venture into a conversation that I think is really the biggest conversation when it comes to identity theft today, and that's sexuality. Uh, Pastor Shane's going to talk about that next week and the following week on sexuality and gender. I fly out on a plane with the Israel group, so I leave Shane to preach on those messages. (laughs) He will probably let you know that next week, all right? But... All that I want to say today, I I just want to talk honestly as a pastor saying this is the word of God. I want to talk about that, but I want to do it it in love. So my family and I were at a Coldplay concert. We love Coldplay, and we were there a year and a half ago at the Moda Center, and it it was a great time. And so we were there. It's a good, fun time. And um, the lights are going on, and and the music's going on, and it's just great. We're just having a great time. Okay, and there's this kind of mellow part in the concert where Chris and the boys, you know, grab the acoustic instruments and they play the love songs, and it's fun. And so up on the TV screen that had been showing the band at all angles, you know, is now showing people in the audience. Very cool. And so as they're playing their love songs, the camera pans to this couple, husband and wife, that are, you know, holding each other and on and on. And, you know, it just keeps doing that five, six times. And then finally... Uh, in just a moment, it pans to uh, two guys embracing each other. Now, what had once been oohs and ahs erupted in celebration and standing applause. And I thought, well, that was a cultural moment. <laughs> that was interesting. Not just ooh and ah, and that's pretty and that's great, but absolute celebration for their decision. Now, I'm not against anybody, but I found it odd that our identities are so fragile that they must not just be accepted. They must not just be affirmed. They must be celebrated. Because I've had people say to me, if you don't celebrate me, you hate me. I'm like, that just is not logical. And that is not true in any area of life. But we are so fragile in these identities we have created. Or I would better say we've allowed the culture to create for us and we've lined ourselves up with, right? So how do we speak into this? What do we do? Well, I want to jump into the area of sexuality, and I want to do it, and I I want to talk to the church, followers of Jesus Christ in the midst of this, because that's what God does, and that's what I want us to do, and that's what I want us to think about today. And then the implication are, what do we do with this in the world we live in today? Well, um, I, I think very clearly we've moved away from the world that God defines right and wrong to we alone define that. And yet the Bible runs smack dab face to face with that. And God says very clearly through his word that there are some things that are good for us and things that are bad for us. There are some expressions of life that are healthy and there are some expressions of life that are very unhealthy. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes to the church of Corinth. And you got to understand Corinth is a messed up place. It's a, it's a, it's a messed up place. In fact, Paul writes in uh, chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, he says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he goes on and he creates a list. It's not the definitive list. There's, you know, Paul has other lists, but, you know, he has a list here, but it's specific to his culture. It's important to understand that. Don't fool yourselves. He says, those who indulge in sexual sin. I mean, you know what that is, right? 
sexual sin. It could be pornography, could be any kind of sexual sin, uh, whether it's individual or with others. Okay, that sexual sin, pretty wide spectrum there. Or who worship idols, and we don't think about that, but we still worship idols today. Back then, it was go to temples, uh, you know, bow down to that, give to that, offer to that, whatever. But today, we still have idols. Idols could be people or possessions or desires or whatever. So don't worship idols or commit adultery. I mean, we know what that is, right? Two people having sex and aren't married. Okay, all right. Or a male prostitutes. There were a lot of prostitutes in the temples, and so that was part of worship back in the day, or practice homosexuality. Okay, we know what that is, right? Two people of the same sex, having sex together, or thieves. You know what that is, right? Someone that steals. These are kind of easy words, right? It's not complicated. Um, or greedy people. You know what that is, right? Yeah, anybody in line at a buffet. Um, or drunkards, right? Drunkards, you know, people that get drunk. Okay, this is not rocket science, my friends. Or abusive, right? It could be verbally, it could be physically abusive. We stand against that. Or cheat people, right? We get that. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I want to make it clear that this is not like a list that has a hierarchy to it. This is just a list. And there are other lists. Jesus has some things he says. Paul has some things. Throughout the New Testament, Old Testament, there are lists. But the bottom line is this, is that this is... A level playing field. And so what I struggle with as food is an idol is just as much an issue as somebody that struggles with something else. Okay? Whatever that might be. And that's important to understand that. None of us can stand in judgment on another person as if we're higher ground than them. We all struggle. We all wrestle with this. So what do we do with it? Well, this is what Paul does. He says some of you were once like that. I love that. Did did you catch that? Look at the implications. I walked in. I preached a message in a very, very, very immoral culture. And people came to Christ. And we pulled you out of all these things. And we are now a church. And we gather together. And I'm writing you a letter to just be reminded that that's who you were. But you're not that anymore, right? Man, there is hope possible for everything that is against God's Standards, right? There's hope for us. We can be changed. We can line ourselves up with God's truth. But you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Paul says, the fact that you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you follow him, you now have the power of the Holy Spirit flowing through you and you can say yes to what God says yes to and you can say no to what God says no to. That's what Paul is saying here. In the midst of his list, he's talking to a culture that wrestled with these things. And I would say he would probably have a little bit different list, but not such a dissimilar list, right? Because we struggle as well. The good news is that our identity is in Jesus Christ as followers. It's not what we've done. It's not what we're doing or what we want to do. Our identity is in Christ. We are not the sum totals of our desires, We are not the sum totals of our desires. So how do we as followers of Jesus Christ, those with a different moral compass, or we should have a different moral compass, live in a world that's drifted far from God's standards of truth? Well, if we back up a chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, this is what Paul says. He says, when I wrote to you before, and we don't have his before letter, so somehow he wrote a letter that we don't have. But when I wrote zero Corinthians, we'll call it, or just Corinthians, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. Uh, Associate means to mix it up with, to have close relationships with, to eat with. Okay, I told you not to do that, all right? But, 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 I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or are greedy or cheat people or worship idols. I wasn't talking about outsiders. He's going to use that word in a minute. 
He goes, that's kind of ridiculous. I wasn't talking about those people. He says, look at this. You would have to leave the world to avoid people like that. I didn't tell you to isolate yourself. You know, you knuckleheads. What, you got this wrong, you know. You started throwing jabs at people outside. You got this wrong. He says, look at this. He says, I meant that you're not to associate, again, mix it up with, associate with, have a close relationship with anyone who claims to be a believer yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols or is abusive or is drunkard or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. He says, you got it wrong. Can I say, man, the church has got it wrong so much. And so this is what Paul says. He says this. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders. Can I say this? It's not your responsibility to judge outsiders. It's not my responsibility to judge outsiders. So you can put your placard down. You can put your bumper sticker away. You can put your YouTube channel away, your Facebook posts away. It's not your job. It's not your responsibility to judge outsiders. That's God's job. And I'm pretty sure God doesn't need help. He doesn't want help. Because as I look at the landscape of what Christianity has done to the world today, we haven't actually helped. We've actually hurt the message of Jesus Christ in many, many, many ways. So he says, it's not my job to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. Now think about that. Boy, if we just got that right. See, by and large... We're known as hypocrites. Of course, everybody's hypocrite because we preach a message and don't live it. We pretend. But I think that's fair to say, in general, of the church in America, we're hypocritical because we're busy judging people outside the church when we have our own struggles, right? And, wh- you know, whether we talk about maybe the Catholic church with all of its struggles or the Christian church or televangelists or whatever, whether we align ourselves with those people or not, it really doesn't matter because we're all lumped into the same bowl, we are known as people that are really good at taking jabs at others, but never look in the mirror. Man, that's not good, my friends. That's never going to convince anybody of the truth, right? He says, or God will judge those on the outside. So who's going to judge the outsiders? Does he need your help? Exactly. Okay. Oh, oh but who, who's supposed to judge the insiders? We are, right? We are. We're supposed to hold each other accountable to the word of God. We're supposed to say, hey, hey, you signed up for this. This is what you're supposed to be a part of, right? He says, but as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. And that seems pretty strong. And by the way, he does illustrate that with some of his things in First and Second Corinthians. Now, the, I think the church gets this so wrong. We stand in judgment over people and the sins of the world. And we wonder why they don't want to come to church, right? It's like, why would they want to come to church if all we do is hate them, right? Because of their behavior. And so many people have done that. It's so wrong. And then to make matters worse, we don't even deal with our own stuff. And so they stand there and go, why would I want to join you? We have no business judging outsiders and holding them accountable to our standards. But when we come into this family, we do accept this and we do hold each other accountable, right? Imagine if I were to drive home today and um, I were to be accosted by a group of CrossFitters. And um, I think that's what they're called when, they're, when they assemble together. Um, and... Um, they were to, you know, grab my car and they were to pick at me with signs and they were to scream, you fatty, you know, um, get, get back to the gym. And I'm like, okay, get thanks. I am overweight. I get that. I need to lose some. I get that. I'm, I'm struggling with food, but it does not make me want to join you. In fact, I wouldn't mind driving over you. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't believe I just said that. Um, but you know what I'm saying? 
that would not endear me to them. Can I just say this? That outsiders have not signed up. So why would we even think they're interested? The more you build relationships with people that are far from God, the more you realize they don't care. And I love that. It's a great time to be alive because we can introduce them to a God who does care and then introduce them to God's standards as we come together into the family of God, right? But why would we think that anybody cares about what we do in this room and therefore we're holding them into account? All right, those outside the church, I believe, should experience unconditional love and forgiveness from us, just like Jesus did with the people he hung out with. You know, when you think about this, um, Luke 15 comes to mind. Jesus tells these three great stories, one about losing one of a hundred sheep and this woman who loses one out of ten coins and this dad who loses one, well, kind of lost both sons on that one. And the reason Jesus tells the story is because the religious people are mumbling and grumbling and complaining about him. Why? Because he eats with sinners. He fellowships with them. He associates with sinners. And this is what it says. It says, this man receives sinners. Not only does he eat with them, he welcomes them to his table. Uh, Here's what I'm going to say. I'm really glad Jesus still receives sinners because that's me. Man, I struggle. I need the gospel every day. I need to be honest and say, here's where I fail. Here's where I wrestle with these truths. Apart from Jesus, I would be lost, right? So we can't stand in judgment over others as if we're superior morally unless they've joined what we have as the church, unless we've come together and received Jesus Christ and said, he is Lord, he's boss, he's savior, he's forgiver. Now we have a responsibility toward one another to hold each other accountable to this. Did you know that 83%, 83% of the LGBTQ plus community grew up in church? 83% grew up in church. 51% left by the time they were 18 years old. Now, do you know why they left? Interestingly enough, when they are surveyed, we are told that only 3% left because of our theology, what I just read. Only 3% left because of that. You know why 97% left? Because of the way we treated them. The way we shamed them. The way we humiliated them. Man, you can read stories and it just break your heart. Just, I'm, you know, just read a story this last week of when a guy came and sat down as a teenager, told his pastor who was struggling with same-sex attraction, the pastor showed him the door and said, never come back again. God hates you and you're going to hell. Like, do you think anybody wants to hear about love at that point? Well, a different kind of love, right? We have no right to do that to people. The overwhelming testimony of the LGBTQ plus community is not that they don't like what the Bible says, although it, it does fly in the face of behavior, but it's just that we're not very nice. We're not very loving. When we stand there with signs and we say horrible things in the name of God, that's why they reject us. And that's why the average sinner was rejected by the religious people of Jesus' day. And that's why, as crazy as it seems, Jesus attracted the brokenhearted and lost people, the sinful people of his day, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. In his day, the lowest of the low, because he loved them. And didn't reject them, but he called them into account when they became followers. Now, the challenge for you and for me is this. Can you hold a belief? Can you hold a belief and at the same time withhold judgment? That's hard. 
Can you hold, firmly hold a belief, a theological belief is true, and yet still at the same time withhold judgment over someone? That's how Jesus did it, right? Is it possible to not make a choice between agreement and love, but to say we can, we can love people and not agree with them, and we don't have to do the same? We don't have to line up and then that's love. We can disagree with someone in love. Is it possible to pursue both grace and truth? Because I believe we're supposed to pursue people far from God that are pursuing whatever they're pursuing, right? Whatever sinful struggle the Bible mentions, whatever we're wrestling with. We're to love people without being hypocritical. But then as they come into the church, we are to hold them accountable to biblical standards. Because we're called, and I think the most loving thing we can do is to love people into the kingdom of God, and that will come with confrontation, and that will come with a call to repentance. But hopefully that's come with the relationship that we've established as we show them God's best. The most loving thing we can do is accept people because God's grace accepted us, and then when they're in the family, hold them accountable to God's truth. It's grace and truth. It's acceptance and accountability. If we truly love people as Jesus did, we will invest our lives in people who are far from God. We will build a relationship with him, demonstrate his love, demonstrate through our life God's truth and invite them to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Jesus wasn't soft on sin. He was really big on love, though. I think sometimes we're big on sin and soft on love. I think we get it wrong. So what are we going to do about it? And over the next couple of weeks, we're just going to talk about this. And here's my encouragement to you. Moms and dads, if you're already freaked out because your kid's in their auditorium and we didn't, you know, give you a trigger warning, um, would you just kind of wake up and realize they know far more about this than you do? <laughs> okay. This is the conversation of our age. Let's have it. Let's have it in church. And so we're going to dig into it. And um, just a little note on this uh, coming up. On Sunday night, June 2nd and June 9th, uh, Pastor Shane and I, we're just going to take questions. So we're going to try to answer as many as we can. So on your Connect card, anytime in the next three weeks, just jot down your questions. What about this? What about that? It could be about a verse. It could be about a thing. I don't know. We're going to read up. We've been reading a lot. We've been reading a lot. Shane's going to preach the next couple weekends as I fly away out of the country. Um, and uh, he's going to do it in a very graceful, loving, truthful way. But it's going to bring up a lot of questions. So please ask those questions. Write them on cards. And then Shane and I will sit in the dining hall, which is the only room available on Sunday nights. Um, and uh, it'll be during youth group time because uh, they're making a change there, 6 to 7.30. And those two nights, we'll just address as many questions as come in. And we'll talk about how do we as followers of Jesus Christ walk in grace and truth. But I think you need this message, and I think some of us need it just because we're here and we're in that situation. Maybe we found ourselves to be hypocritical or judgmental for the wrong reasons. Maybe some of us have found ourselves to be a little bit at a loss because we feel like an outcast. Maybe somehow our desires and urges have defined us, or maybe perhaps we've allowed someone else in our culture to define us. Maybe someone else, by the very nature of the air we breathe and what we take in, has defined reality for us. And we, without even thinking, we have adopted that as normal. And this message has come across a little harsh. You know, I think the reality is, is that God loves. But part of love is the responsibility of obedience. 
And Jesus says it later on. His disciple John says it. If you love me, you'll obey the commands. And all of us struggle. And none of us stand in judgment over anybody else as if we're superior. But we will stand in accountability to one another as we hold one another up and lift up one another and carry one another on this journey. That's what true Christian love is all about in family. So if you're here, you're here and you find yourself kind of somewhere on that journey, I hope we're all somewhere on that journey, that we'd be the most loving people to people that struggle in whatever they struggle with. And if it's specifically the area of sexuality or identity or gender, then we have incredible grace. Um, because, you know, we, we all don't know as much as we think we know. And we don't love as much as we really should be loving. And we probably don't speak the truth as much as we should in love. And that's our journey. So let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you for your love. And I want to thank you for Jesus who comes and he rescues us from our sinfulness. My sinfulness, my struggle, everybody else's. And you don't view one sin as worse than the other or a categorical way, Father, but you definitely say this is the standard you hold us to because you've made us, you're creator God, you're, you're a father and you know what's right and good and what is pleasing and what is the best for us. And we limp along on that journey, God, and we struggle and sometimes we're in rebellion against you and sometimes we fight you and yet you still love us. So may we as a church come alongside people one another, and even those outside, and love them into your kingdom as we demonstrate, demonstrate the grace and truth of Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.